And um, we're continuing with our series in the book of Matthew. And, and so far, you'll remember, if you've been with us, we've been primarily focused on Jesus being the king of a kingdom who comes to redeem God's people and restore God's creation. And now we're going to begin to learn a little bit more about the kingdom itself. We've been focusing on the king, and now we're going to get to see about his kingdom. And, and what's interesting is, when you talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, there's a lot of ideas about it. But we learn a very interesting fact, even this morning as we start to read, it's that the kingdom of God here is what we're seeing is that it's exclusive. And that doesn't sit well with people today, does it? Everybody wants everything to be inclusive, and so they want the kingdom of God to be inclusive. The problem is, the Bible says the kingdom of God is exclusive. And that's, that wasn't a popular message in John's day. It's even less popular today. That's why we've got false teachers like Rob Bell and other universalists who will say, well, in the end, all people everywhere are going to get to go to heaven, regardless of if they repent, regardless of if they believe in Jesus, regardless of their religion or their particular beliefs, that in the end, no matter what, everybody's going to heaven. And they'll say, you can imagine and picture uh, like a mountain. And they'll say, imagine that God and His kingdom are the very tip of that mountain. And they'll say, there may be many paths up that mountain, but eventually they all lead to the one true God. And so they say, therefore, no religion discounts any other religion. And all religions are equally valid. And so you just need to be faithful to what you believe. If you want further proof of this idea that the kingdom of God is completely inclusive and everybody thinks they're going to heaven, just ask them. They'll tell you, right? You ask 99% of people today, hey, if there is such a place as heaven, are you going? They'll say, of course I am. Why? Well, I'm a good person. I do good things. I help people out. I've attended church services. I was baptized. I've done this. I've done that. And so almost everybody in our world uh, you know, subscribes to this idea that if there is a God, and if there is a heaven, and if He does have a kingdom, well, everybody's getting it. That's what our world thinks. But, personally, I don't care too much about what the world thinks. I'm more interested in what the Bible has to say. How about you? And what we read here, the Bible says, is that the kingdom of God is exclusive. That there actually are requirements to enter in to this kingdom. And those requirements have absolutely nothing to do at all with how good of a person you are, how nice you are, how well you treat people, how many church services you've attended, how often you've been baptized, how many Bible verses you have memorized, or anything at all like that. Entry into the kingdom of God has nothing to do with that. But what the Bible says here is that entry into the kingdom of God requires sincere repentance and faith in Jesus. That's how you get in. People say, well, you know, can everybody get in? Sure. All you have to do is repent and believe. It is that easy. Sincere repentance and faith in Jesus. And we talk about faith in Jesus a lot, as we should. And we throw around that word repentance a lot. That's one of those church words that everybody thinks they kind of know what it means, but they're not really sure what it means. And so it's like, maybe we need a refresher course. And so if it's true that it requires sincere repentance to get into the kingdom of God, what we want to ask this morning and consider is, well, what is sincere repentance? 
Is all repentance sincere repentance? And, and if not, then what distinguishes sincere repentance from false repentance? These are the things that we need to consider if it's true that we need to sincerely repent in order to enter into the kingdom of God. And this is exactly what John was preaching. I want you to notice verses 1-4. through four. This is what the Bible says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Now, it's easy to read this, and you go, okay, well, I'm familiar with this passage, but let's just try to put ourselves in the scene here, okay? If you're living in Jerusalem, Judea, anywhere in the region at the time, uh, you need to understand that it had been over 400 years since anybody had heard a prophetic message from God. God had gone silent on them. You have the close of the Old Testament, and then 400 plus years of silence, and then someone calls us a stir. And this guy is dressed exactly like Elijah. You read the description of Elijah and how he was dressed in 2 Kings chapter 1, and then you read how John the Baptist is dressed here. They look exactly alike. And he's prophesying, and he's preaching. And the crowds here, there's a new prophet. They think Elijah has come again. They hear that he's preaching, he's prophesying, he's baptizing, he's drawing these huge crowds, and so they rush to go see him. And they want to hear his message. And when they get there, the message they hear is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They hear repent, but they're wondering, what does that mean? Well, maybe you're wondering the same thing, just to to make it very simple. At its very base meaning, the biblical word repent simply means to turn. It's an entire 180 degree turn. It means that you were going this way and you need to stop, turn the exact opposite direction and start going that way. That is biblical repentance. It's a 180 degree turn. But it's also much more than that, right? Because you have to understand, when we tell people to turn from their sins, we're not simply calling them to turn from something. We're calling them to turn to something, right? It's an intentional turn. Don't just turn from your sin to another sin. Don't just turn from your sin to something else. You turn from your sin to Jesus. And so you need to understand that that biblical repentance is actually a complete reorientation. It means that you're orienting your life, your loves, your desires, your passions, your interests, your actions, your will, everything to be in conformity with God. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a decision that you're making to turn from your sin and completely make your life in line with God. And, and you can think about it kind of like a tire alignment, right? If you're driving in your car, you've got your hands on the steering wheel, you're, you're intending to go straight, you're not turning the wheel, but you're veering off to the right or to the left, you might need a tire alignment, right? You should be going straight, you're not even turning the wheel. But if you're not going straight when you intend to be and you're veering off, that means that your, your car needs an alignment. And, and so you need to go and get it reoriented so that when you intend to go straight, you actually do go straight. And that's kind of like our lives from time to time, right? We, we're trying to go straight, and we can admit there are times when we do. 
We're trying to go straight. We're trying to follow the Lord, follow His will. We're trying to obey Him and live lives that are pleasing to Him. But as often as we try to go straight, we tend to veer, don't we? We tend to go off course. We tend to go astray. We tend to fall to sin and temptation. And it means we need an alignment. We need to be reoriented so that we can actually follow the Lord faithfully in our lives. And that's what repentance is. It's like a spiritual tire alignment. (laughs) It's reorienting, reorienting yourself to God so that you're following in line with Him. And John says that the reason that we should do this is because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying it's here. It's coming. The king is bringing the kingdom with him. And so you need to repent now. You see, John was preparing the way for the Lord. He was making sure that the bride was ready to receive her groom. Right? When the king brought the kingdom, it meant an entirely new way of life. It meant nothing was going to be the same, that you were going to be living a completely new life. And unfortunately, the people were not ready to live that new life. The people were not ready for life in the kingdom. There was a whole lot of preparation that needed to be done first. It's kind of like this day where uh, about halfway through the day or could have even been like two thirds away through the day. I don't know. But Anna told me, she's like, hey, guess what? Tonight we're having dinner with the Masseys and the Berry Hills. And I was like, that's awesome. I love the Masseys and the Berry Hills. They're some of our favorite people. And I was like, so this is really cool. And then she says, yeah, and they're coming over here. It's not cool anymore. All right. It's, it's not cool. Halfway through the day, I'm all excited. And then they're coming over to our house. I look around. Well, guess what? Our whole house is a wreck. It looked like a tornado had gone through that place. Dirty dishes in the sink, islands completely covered. I've got toys like buried into the wall, you know, because our kids are crazy. There's just toys everywhere. We were not prepared, okay? They were coming. We were not prepared to receive them. There was a whole lot of prep work that needed to be done first. And that's exactly what John's job was. That's what the Bible is saying here. That God wanted His people to be prepared to receive their king and be part of His kingdom, but they weren't. And so God sent John ahead of Jesus to prepare the people. And Matthew says it's actually a fulfillment of this prophecy of Isaiah where he says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make His path straight. Now this is really interesting because there's something cool going on here that's easy to miss. Uh, In these times, in ancient times, ancient roads were really bad, okay? And I don't think think you're following me. They were really bad. Still don't think you get it. They would make driving on 85 in South Carolina feel like a pleasant Sunday drive, okay? (laughs) I think, I feel like it was Jordan who said this one time or something along the way. He said the main difference between North Carolina and South Carolina is when you come into South Carolina, you got to grip the steering wheel harder. (laughs) roads are terrible, but they would make ancient roads look like a pleasant Sunday drive. I mean, our roads, their roads were so bad, there's just no comparison there, right? And so what would happen is if a king was going to visit a certain place and he knew that he was going to travel on certain roads, he would actually send a crew ahead of him. And what this crew would do is they would fix every single road the king was going to travel on. 
And so they would fill all the potholes. They'd fill all the ditches. And the roads were never straight. And so they would actually straighten up the roads. And so this whole crew would go before the king and they would prepare the roads. They'd smooth them out and straighten them out so that the king could travel on these roads. Well, that's what John was doing here. He's making straight the way of the Lord. But notice this. It's very important that we don't miss this. He's not straightening out physical roads. He's preparing the way to our hearts. God sent John so that John could smooth out all the potholes, all the ditches that would prevent our hearts from receiving King Jesus and being part of His kingdom. That was John's job. He's calling people to do this by repentance. The way that you're smoothing out these potholes and, and these ditches and you're straightening the path to your heart is by repentance. And, and understand, that's not some big mystical thing, right? It's very practical. Because this is what happens in Luke chapter 3, verses 10-14. through 14. This is Luke recording the exact same event except he's including more words that, that John actually said. I want you to notice how practical it is, right? So John says, hey, the king is coming with the kingdom, so you need to repent, and you need to repent because the king is coming, right? And they go, okay, well, what shall we do? What does repentance look like? And he says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Okay, well, some tax collectors come. They're like, well, what about us? You know, what, what do we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. And then some soldiers come. They're like, okay, well, but what about us? What do we do? And and he said, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So so notice, this it's not something super mystical or, or even something super spiritual. He's saying repentance is actually very practical. These are very simple principles of generosity, honesty, and contentment. And the reason he's calling people to live this way, folks, don't miss it, Because this is what life in the kingdom looks like. He's preparing people to live in the kingdom of God. And he's like, this is what it looks like. Generous, content, honest people who are conforming their lives to be like that of God's character. And so he's calling people to reorient their lives to be in line with God and His ways because this is what kingdom living looks like. And so here's what I want you to understand. Very first thing here this morning is that sincere repentance is a determination to align our lives with God's will. That's what we see John calling people to do here. When you're thinking about sincere repentance in your own life, I want you to understand that it means if you're going to sincerely repent of your sins, you are determining to align your life with God's will. I want you to think about it like this. If if your heart was a road, you know we were talking about John is preparing the way of the Lord, right? If your heart was a road, think about this. What are the roadblocks and obstacles and areas in your heart that need to be smoothed out for you to be able to receive Jesus as King and be part of His kingdom? What are those things for you? What are the things that are causing you to veer that that make it very apparent you need a spiritual realignment? For most of us, it's probably sin and temptation, right? Right? We fall to sin and temptation that are constantly causing us to go off course. For many, it's lust, it's greed, it's anger, drugs, alcohol, a critical and judgmental heart. Sometimes it's a lack of empathy. Sometimes it's a lack of mercy and grace. Sometimes it's simply discontentment. 
There are all sorts of sins and temptations in our lives, and those things are these roadblocks, these obstacles, these potholes, ditches that we need to smooth out and make straight so that we can receive Jesus as King and live in His kingdom. But I want you to understand, it's not just sin and temptation. That's what the devil wants us to think. As long as I get him to focus on this, they won't see this. He's great at sleight of hand, isn't he? For many of us, it's good stuff. For many of us, there are good things in our lives that constantly cause us to veer and go off course that we need to straighten those paths up. For for many of us, there are some hobbies and interests and activities that we're involved in that are causing us to veer and go off course. Why? Because we're prioritizing those things over Jesus and His kingdom and His mission. It's not technically a sin, that thing that you're involved in. But when you begin to prioritize it over Jesus, it certainly is. And so we need to be aware at all times, not just of sins, but also of good things in our lives. Anything that would cause us to go off course and prioritize something over Jesus and His kingdom. You see, the kingdom of God is really nothing more than God's rule over God's people. That's that's what the kingdom of God actually is. And the Bible says that the kingdom, the kingdom came with the king. And so you need to understand, Jesus, hear me on this folks, He's ruling and reigning today. Amen? Amen. Jesus is seated on the throne today. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. He is ruling now. The kingdom has come. And if you want to be part of this kingdom, you have to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. And that repentance, it means that you're determining to align your life with God's will. But but there's more that we learn here from John's sermon. Look at verses 5-7. through This is what the Bible says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to Him. And they were baptized by Him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. But when He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come into His baptism, He said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I'm going to be honest with you, John's my type of preacher, okay? I like that kind of preaching. And he's good at it too, right? And he was not popular in his day. People think that, you know, you're only a good preacher if you're popular. Look at the the sermons of John the Baptist and look at the sermons of Jesus, okay? They were not popular in their day. He's he's shooting it straight right here. His message was hated because John had the audacity to actually tell people what the Bible said. How dare he do that? But he told the people what God thought of the way they were living. He spoke about sin and the need for repentance and warned of the coming judgment. Now, his message was hated then. It's love today, right? You talk about sin, you talk about judgment, you talk about repentance, how popular are you going to be today? Oh, you're not. I can't tell you how many books I've read, how many podcasts I've listened to, how many uh, you know, interviews I've listened to with Church growth experts. I'm going to put that in quotation. Church growth experts. It's interesting. They always uh, equate the health of a church with the attendance of the church, which is just demonstrably false. Because let me just remind you this morning, folks, that Joel Osteen's church is absolutely packed this morning. So if you need an example of how the health of a church isn't related to the attendance of a church, there you go. His church is packed. And they'll have multiple services. But anyways, I digress. These church growth experts, mostly popular preachers, 
who want to encourage you and tell you how you can be popular, how you can grow your church, how you can be successful. And here's what they warn preachers about. They say this, they warn all preachers to stop talking about sin and calling out sin and telling people they need to repent because, hold on a second, it makes people feel bad. Well, that's what they say though. I mean, it's a shame. Do you know how many people are listening to these podcasts and reading these books and listening to these interviews? Do you know how many people are going to listen to this and they want to say, I want to be the next big name preacher? Insert name here, right? And they're going to do this. They say, you've got to stop talking about sin. You've got to stop talking about repentance. You've got to stop calling people out on their sin because it makes people feel bad. Joel Osteen, in fact, has been quoted saying that he never talks about sin in his church because people already have enough to worry about. And that's just going to add something to it. And so he says that he didn't talk about sin in his church. He doesn't call people to repentance in his church. Look, there's just one problem with that approach. It's unbiblical, right? It's completely unbiblical. You might appease an audience. You might appease a crowd. You can become the most popular preacher in the world if you preach that way. But we're not here to entertain the goats, are we? We're here to feed the sheep. And God feeds His sheep through His Word. And notice what the Word says here. What is God's very first message to the world after 400 years of silence? Repent. His first word is not, guess what? I still love you. I'm still here for you. You're not that bad. You're not that bad. Stop listening to all these things that people are telling you. I'm here for you. You just need a little help. God's very first word to the world through John after 400 years of silence was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' very first sermon was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when I look at what the popular preachers are saying and I look at what the Bible says, I have to come to the conclusion repentance seems pretty important to God, does it not? If this is His first message and this is His repeated message, it seems like God cares an awful lot that we turn from our sins and turn to faith in Jesus. There's no other way into His kingdom. And this is what John was preaching when the religious leaders of Israel heard and they want to come, right? So they hear that there's preaching and there's prophesying, there's baptizing. There's a religious movement, so they need to be there. Why? Because they've got to be at the center of every religious movement. And so they go. And John saw through their hypocritical actions, did he not? John sees them coming from afar, and he says, You brood of vipers! Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, people today would call John mean and judgmental and hateful, right? Jesus called him the greatest man who had ever been born of woman. Because John knew something very important, folks. This applies mostly to shepherds, but I think it also applies to every Christian. Every shepherd has two voices. One to comfort the sheep and one to scare away the wolves. And John knew that. You do the sheep no favors when you talk to a wolf as if it's a sheep. In fact, the only thing you do when you treat a wolf like a sheep is you endanger the sheep, right? And so John had no problem calling out religious hypocrites 
whose hearts were far from God and saying, you're a brood of vipers. It's because John knew that they were there for the wrong reasons. You see, notice why they're there. John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John knows that the only reason the religious leaders are there is because they heard there's wrath to come, there's a reality of hell, and I don't want any part of it. So all I have to do is just participate in this religious activity and we'll be good. We'll be saved from God's wrath. It's not true repentance. It's false repentance. They were there because they were afraid. But here's what I want you to understand this morning. Sincere repentance is motivated by sorrow. Sincere repentance is motivated by sorrow. And it's a very specific kind of sorrow, church. It's sorrow over the fact that you have sinned and offended God Himself. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he said, against you and you alone, O Lord, I have sinned. It's sorrow over the fact that you have a loving, merciful, holy God who has done nothing but been gracious to you your entire life and you have offended Him again and done something so displeasing to Him and even if there was never any punishment, you are torn up about the fact that you could do something like that to God. That is why someone repents of their sins. That is the true motivation for repentance. It's sorrow over that offense against God. And listen, we need to be clear on that. Because there are a lot of false motivations today, aren't there? There are a lot of wrong motivations today that lead to false repentance. I'll tell you one of the most popular ones today. False repentance is motivated by fear and punishment. That's exactly why the the religious leaders were there, right? False repentance is motivated by fear and punishment. They heard there was wrath to come. They're afraid of the wrath to come. And so what do they do? They act like they repent and they submit themselves to John's baptism. Or at least they try to. And I can't tell you how many, how many really churches and organizations utilize this today. Because I can't tell you how many times as a teenager and throughout my life growing up, I made decisions for Christ. None of them stuck and none of them were real because I went back to sin in the very next day after that decision. But I remember one time in particular, I was at a youth camp. I was about 13, 14 years old. And they got a guy coming up there, fire and brimstone kind of guy, you know, delivering his message. And at the end, they showed a video, a a depiction of what hell would be like, a a depiction of the devil and the torture and all this kind of stuff. I was terrified. I'm 13 years old at the time. Naturally, you're going to be terrified. And we were outside in the dark at the time. And I'm like, there's woods out there. You don't know what's out there. I mean, come on, we don't need to be watching this. So I was absolutely terrified. And so I was like, the preacher said, all you have to do is come down here, repeat a few words after me. Well, I'm sold on that. If I'm seeing that I've got the option, I can either go to this place that looks horrible, or I can just go repeat a couple words, and then I'm safe in that place. Done deal. Okay? You don't even have to think about that. So I go down front. I make that decision for Christ. Next day, I go right back to sinning. Why? Because it was false repentance. I didn't love Jesus. I didn't hate sin. I was just scared of hell. Just because you're scared of hell doesn't mean you're going to heaven. You understand that, right? And I want to be clear on this, and I don't want people to to misunderstand what I'm saying here. It is absolutely fine to warn people about the reality of hell. It is absolutely fine to warn people about the coming judgment on Judgment Day. That's biblical. 
You see John doing it here. I've done it plenty of times. Paul did it in his writings. I'm not condemning that at all. But I want us to understand that unless a person first loves Jesus, he will never hate his sin. And unless he hates his sin, he's never going to turn from his sin. And you have to turn from your sin in order to join the kingdom of God. You see, a person can fear hell but not love Jesus. That's the devil's situation, right? Uh, the, de- the devil is not looking forward to hell. As Jordan said last week, he doesn't rule hell. The devil is terrified of hell. He knows that's his final destination. He's afraid of hell and he doesn't love Jesus. He's not going to heaven, is he? You can fear hell and not love Jesus. You see, a person will never truly hate their sin unless they truly love Jesus. That's how you get people into the kingdom. You don't try to scare them into making a momentary decision that they're just going to go back on the next day. You show them the glory of Jesus. You show them the beauty of Jesus and what He has done for us. That He left the glories of heaven to come and take on sinful flesh like us. He had no sin of His own, but He took on flesh and became like us in every way, yet was without sin. He lived a perfect life for us. He died a gruesome death in our place. He rose again for us. He did all of this while we were still enemies of God. This is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's the exact imprint of His nature. You show people the beauty of Jesus. Get them to fall in love with Jesus. And when they do, they'll hate their sin. And when they hate their sin, they'll turn from their sin. And they'll give it all to Jesus. They'll pour it out at the feet of Jesus. You need to understand that true repentance, sincere repentance is motivated by sorrow, not this fear of punishment. The other thing I need us to understand is that false repentance is not just motivated by fear of punishment, but also a lot of times is shame and guilt and embarrassment over the fact that you were caught in your sin. Right? Right? Few things will lead a person to start repenting more than when he has to repent, right? You think about a man who's having an affair on his wife. He doesn't care that he's dishonoring God. He doesn't care that he's broken his marriage covenant. He doesn't care that he is just absolutely abusing his wife. He has no sorrow over what he's doing at all, right? Until he gets caught. Then the apologies roll in, don't they? Oh, he's so sorry. Sorry, so sorry. I don't know how I could do this. It's never going to happen again. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I truly am. I'm just heartbroken about this. Do you think he's actually sorry that he sinned against his wife or just sorry that he got caught sinning against his wife? Exactly. Now, here's why this is relevant for us because maybe you've got some sin in your lives and they've been exposed and they've been brought to light and you've been caught. And you start saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm repenting, I'm repenting, I'm so sorry. And you start laying it all out. Let me ask you a question. Are you sorry that you sinned against God? Or are you sorry that you just got caught sinning against God? One way to think about this is I want you to just try to get this in your mind. If there was no threat of hell, if there was no day of judgment, if there was no devil to accuse you, or conscience to make you feel guilty, would you still feel sorrow and be moved to repentance for no other reason than that you have offended the holy, loving, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, almighty God? If that is not your sole reason 
for repentance, then folks, you have a false repentance. It must be motivated by sorrow over your sin. And when you have sorrow over your sin and you turn from that sin and you determine to align your life with God's will, there's going to be a noticeable change, isn't there? Notice what he says next in verses 8-12 through as we close. He says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able to raise from these stones, uh, raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. So notice what he's saying here, folks. He's saying, okay, I've told you what to do. Repent. I've told you why to do it. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I've told you how to repent and what that looks like practically. And he says here now, well, here's the way that you know that it was true and sincere repentance. Your life's going to be different. You bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, false repentance has been a thing for a long time. It's been very common throughout the years. It was just as common in Jesus' day as it is in our day. Because maybe you remember there was a time when a rich young ruler came to Jesus. Do you remember that? And he, he looked like he had sincere repentance. He came to Jesus and he said, hey, listen, you know, I, I'm ready to follow you. He, he's coming forward saying, I, I've messed up. I've done all this kind of stuff. But, but I recognize I'm, I'm ready to follow you. I need to follow you. And hey, guess what? I've kept all the commandments since birth, so we don't even need to get into that. Like, I'm good on that, so we're, we're, we're fine, and I'm going to follow you. And Jesus said, okay, cool, you, you can come follow me. Just do one thing first, go and sell all your possessions, and then you can come follow me. What did the rich young ruler do? He walked away. It looked like sincere repentance at first, right? He's laying everything down, he's going to choose to follow Jesus, but there was a There was a roadblock in his heart, wasn't there? There was a path that had not been made straight yet that kept him from receiving Jesus as king and following Jesus as his love of his money and his possessions. And and I want you to notice this. It was easy enough for him to recognize that there were some things in his life that needed to change, right? That's easy enough for most of us to recognize. It, It was easy enough for him to recognize that there were some things in his life that weren't quite right that he needed to work on. It was even easy enough for him to recognize that he needed to follow Jesus and align his life with God's will. But when Jesus told him what must actually change in his life, he was unwilling to let go of it. He was unwilling to turn from it. And his life continued just as it always had before. Did That's what false repentance is. The same thing happens today. You see, there are teenagers and adults, maybe even here this morning, but definitely in the church today. There are teenagers and adults today who made a decision when they were a child. 
They made a decision for Christ. They, they walked an aisle. They maybe filled out a card. They prayed a prayer after a preacher. They asked Jesus in their heart. Maybe they followed up with baptism. And they convinced themselves that day, I am saved. I'm going to heaven. And ever since that day, what have they been doing? They've convinced themselves, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. The problem is, their lives haven't changed at all. Their lives are no different Then before they made all those decisions and filled out those cards and walked that aisle. Nothing has changed at all. They still do not have Jesus number one in their lives. They still have no commitment to the church, to the kingdom of God, or to the mission of God. Their loves have barely changed. They have not prioritized Jesus in His mission. They know just enough Bible and have just enough awareness of sin to let them know right from wrong, but they do not have enough hatred of sin and love of Jesus to actually fully submit their lives to Jesus. It's false repentance. They're looking to the wrong thing. They're trusting in the wrong thing and they're trying to convince themselves that they're absolutely a Christian even though nothing in their lives match what a Christian looks like at all. Exactly what the Pharisees would have done here. This is the type of false repentance that John is warning us about here. And he says there's going to be judgment and wrath for all those who trust in their false repentance. He says every tree that doesn't bear good fruit, it's cut down, thrown into the fire. And he says the judgment is starting now, doesn't he? He says the axe is already laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that's not going to bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The winnowing fork is already in the hands of Jesus. He is separating the wheat from the chaff. He says, you want to be gathered in my barn? Here's what you must do. Repent of your sins and trust in me. Anyone who refuses to do that is thrown into the fire. And so here's what you need to see with this last point as we close It's sincere repentance leads to a new direction. That's one of the clearest signs that you've had true repentance take place in your life. If you're the type of person who says, well, yeah, I have repented of my sins. I've trusted in Christ for salvation. Here's a good way to test it. Does your life look different? Do you have a new direction in your life at all? If nothing has changed in your life and you're still bearing bad fruit and you're still living in sin and you're not actually turning from that sin and you're not actually trusting in Jesus, I'm sorry, it was a false repentance to begin with. And you have trusted in it for far too long. And you see, anyone can make a momentary decision in a church service. That's easy, is it not? One of the easiest things you can do. But, but God is interested not in just a momentary decision you make in a church service. He's interested in what your life is going to look like moving forward. Because if it's not different, then you haven't truly repented. And what's interesting to me is that there's usually a false confidence to go with false repentance. Did you notice that with the Pharisees and Sadducees? Did you see what the, their thought process was? Because John called them out on it. They were going to say, well, hey, listen, we're children of Abraham. We're good. Right? We're safe. We don't have to worry about anything. Yeah, we'll do your little baptism thing. We heard about the wrath. But at the end of the day, God's not going to punish us because we're children of Abraham. So we're good. You see, their false confidence was their heritage. And admittedly, that's not really our problem today, is it? No, our problem is our past. Our past is for us what the Pharisees' heritage was for them. And here's what I mean by that. As Christians today... We tend to put far too much emphasis on the past and what we've done in the past. It's all about decisions we made in the past. 
Walking down an aisle in the past, a card we filled out in the past, a baptism we experienced in the past, religious experiences that we had in the past. And what we do is we looked at these things and we assure ourselves that we are Christians today because of something that we did then, something we believed in then, something we trusted in then. But hear me on this church, God is always most interested in the present right now. God's not interested in what you believed when you were 12 years old if you don't believe it now. He's not interested in what you were trusting in when you were 12 years old if you're not trusting in it now. This is our problem today. What do you believe in now? What are you trusting in now? What's your assurance of salvation right now? How are you living right now? What are you committed to right now? The church has got to get out of the past. We can't afford to be stuck in the past anymore. You know, I imagine that if the church today actually focused more on what we're trusting in right now and believing in right now and doing right now, we'd be far more effective in this world today, wouldn't we? And we need to be effective because there's work to do in this world. Is there not, church? Look at this world. It needs work. It needs effective churches that are committed to Jesus and His kingdom and His mission. And so we can't afford not to be effective today. The King has come and He has brought His kingdom with Him. My question is, are you prepared for life in that kingdom? Are you determined to smooth out those potholes and roadblocks in your heart and align your life with God's will? Do you see the heinousness of sin this morning and loathe it so much because it offends God that you're willing to turn aside from it and submit yourself fully to God's will and God's ways? My question for you this morning is, are you prepared to follow Jesus and bear fruit in keeping with repentance? We need to ask these questions and we need to answer them right now because the kingdom of God has come with the King and entrance into this kingdom It requires sincere repentance and faith in Jesus. Will you repent and believe today? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we ask that in this moment, you would not allow the enemy to steal the seed of this message. We pray right now, Lord, that you would protect each and every one of our hearts from the enemy and his ways and from his attempts to move our minds and our hearts and our consciences past this message. Lord, would you protect it and allow it to take root in our hearts? With your Holy Spirit, God, would you actually nourish this message in our hearts and allow it to to grow and actually become a reality in our lives? Lord, we ask that you would bring conviction this morning. That if there's anyone in here this morning who's been trusting in something that they did in the past, but they're not actually trusting in Jesus today, Lord, would you point that out to them? Lord, if if there's anyone in here who has primarily called themselves a Christian because they're afraid of hell, rather than the fact that they love Jesus, would you point that out to them? Lord, if there's someone in here this morning who's calling themselves a Christian but hasn't actually turned from their sins, who is actually living in willful, open, unrepentant sin, would you point that out to them? 
Lord, in this moment, would you bring conviction to our hearts? Would you allow this message to take root and grow? And would your power be manifest in what you're going to do after today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a a time of invitation here in just one second. And I want to open up the altar to to anyone who wants to respond. You can certainly respond where you're at. But if you want to come and uh, pray by yourself, you can do that. If you want to come and pray with me or Pastor Jordan, we'll both make ourselves available. You might not want to pray with me, actually. That would be a little too close. You want to pray with Pastor Jordan. Uh, He will be down here. He's not sick, so that's great. But I want you to think about what we've heard because it's a really important message. Everybody thinks that they're going to heaven, but nobody really thinks about how they're going to get there, right? That's not an assumption you want to mess around with, is it? Anyone can die at any time. We don't know when our time is. It could be today. And I would absolutely hate if you were trusting in something other than Jesus Christ alone. I would hate that that you've been living on the assumption that you're going to heaven rather than having the assurance that comes with trusting in Jesus. And so, we've heard about repentance this morning. I want you to just search your own heart. Are you determined to align your life with God's will? I want you to search your heart. Are you motivated purely by sorrow over sin and offending God? Or do you have some false motivation like fear, shame, guilt, embarrassment? And then I want you to look at your life one more time this morning. Think about that first moment that you decided to follow Jesus and look at your life today. Has there been any sort of change at all? That's how you know whether it's sincere repentance or not. I'm not saying you need to be perfect. None of us are perfect. Can we admit that, George's Creek? Yeah? Show of hands? Yeah? We're not a perfect church. We admit that. Bunch of sinners saved by the grace of God. Relying on the mercy of God. So you don't have to be perfect, but there does need to be a change in your life, a noticeable change that can be attributed to nothing other than salvation in Christ. So I want you to think about those things as we have this time of invitation, and you can come and respond as needed.